Welcome to North Boston Korean United Methodist Church. Here we are a family that seeks to love others the way Jesus loves us and raise people up in his love. We're grateful to have you listen in. Regardless of who you are, you are always welcome here. For more information, check out our website at mbkumc.com. Welcome to Sunday service. Um, we are continuing through our sermon series on Acts. I hope you guys are doing well. I hope you guys are staying safe. Um, it was really wonderful to see a couple or some of you guys yesterday, um, but it's even more wonderful to see everybody. So, um, but we're just continuing through our sermon series on Acts. Um, I, I want to jump right into this one. So if we can all turn with me um, to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47. I'm reading from the ESV. While we are in quarantine, it is just all the more difficult to be able to worship God and to be able to understand everything that he's saying. So I think that NIV and RSV would be fine. Uh, but I am reading from the ESV. Obviously, we're not able to rise for the reading of God's holy and perfect word, but I pray that we would have our hearts still before God in this moment. This is the word of the Lord. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in praying? God, we just, we, we just want to honor you, Lord. Um, we just want to honor all that you are, uh, all that you have said in your word. Father, Lord, we just pray at this time for everybody who's listening, God, that you would speak mightily about what it is to be a community and what it is to be a church. Father God, in this time of quarantine, when all our communities are stripped away from us, I pray, Lord, that your word would be magnified in our hearts. God, that nothing would matter outside of what you say, what you say we should be. And God, would you hide me behind your cross, that it is only you who is magnified and only you who is glorified. We love you. We give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, I pray all these things. Amen. So today, you know, it's a little bit of a switch. Um, it's not like a consistent thing, but I really felt convicted to um, really hone in on these five verses separately. And so we are going over today what it means to be a church, what it means to be a fellowship of believers. Um, in this time of quarantine, where being next to the people that we love and the community that supports us is something that is seen to be detrimental to us, is something that seems to be a health hazard. Um, but I really believe that God is in our midst and that God is doing something in the body of Christ to be able to foster intimacy with God and unity amongst the believers. For those of us who might be in seasons where we are 
um, jaded or we are lethargic or we are um, kind of stuck in our own bubble of home and we're unable to see how we are being supported and how we are part of the body of Christ, I want to encourage you guys to really allow your hearts to be open to whatever it is that God is going to speak through you today, speak to you today, because we need to contend. And by contend, I mean fight for our community. That's very important. The community of the body of Christ is very important to your salvation, and it is very important to your sanctification. And so when you feel like you are getting jaded about being in a body of believers, when you feel like you are jaded about being a part of a church, then so more than ever is your faith in danger. And I hope that this word really speaks to you guys powerfully so that you can fight for your faith and fight for your relationships. So this is like in the context of we had, what we had been speaking about last week, um, the Holy Spirit fire just jumps on like all the people that were in the upper room, all the disciples, the women, the families, um, and just they all started to speak in different languages. Everybody is freaking out um, in Jerusalem. They're all like, what the heck is going on? And then Peter goes and he says, we are not drunk and witnesses to the gospel, witnesses to the fact that this, this sign, this wonder, his testimony is because of Jesus. And what they're seeing is the power of the spirit manifest, made manifest. Um, and the non-believers were cut to the heart. They say, brothers, what shall we do after Peter preaches this really, really hard message about how Judaism is basically like all these Jews are basically not looking at the right thing. And um, upon their question, what shall we do? Peter says, repent and be baptized. And the last verse before this, today's reading, it says that many were saved. Um, those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So about 3,000 people are saved as a result of this message. And then Luke, the author of Acts, he launches into the fellowship of the believers. Now, it's very interesting because upon their salvation, it's very reasonable for Luke to move on and start talking about other things, talking about you know, how Peter did this miracle, how John did that miracle. But Luke actually pauses and dedicates about five verses to explain the body of Christ that resulted out of Christianity, out of the message of Christ. It's different in time frame. Luke is going through a somewhat chronological time frame, but he actually pauses to give a more like a general understanding, um, a a partially time-based, like partially based on that time, but explaining something that is timeless, something that is continuing even into when he is writing this letter. And so he pauses the tense of the verb. He pauses the time frame of what is the story that's being told to explain the body of Christ in nature. 
So he's both making a historical observation and putting theological emphasis. This is really important. This is really important because these five verses are to dictate the way that the church lives life. They are to dictate the way that the church lives life. Now, what happened to the 3,000 souls that were joined to the Lord that day? They became the body of Christ. And so what comes out of this is the group that received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and the 3,000 souls that have gotten saved, they become the body of Christ. And then it jumps right into the unity of the believers. Now, in verse 42, verse 42, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And so right off the bat, it explains the four essential things of the body of Christ. So right off the bat, as soon as people get saved, the first thing that everything is explained, the first thing that is explained is the essentials of the church. What makes church a church? What makes church different from school? What makes church different from work? What makes church church? And it's these four things. Number one is the teaching of the apostles. And the second one is fellowship. The third is the breaking of bread. And the fourth is prayers. Now I'm going to break these down a little bit more for y'all. Uh, the number, the number first, the number one thing is teaching, teaching of the apostles. Now, what is this? This is actually the earliest mention in scripture of a sermon apart from the ministry of Jesus. This is the first mention of a sermon, a genuine institutionalized, consistent teaching of the ministry of Christ and um, of all that Christ had fulfilled. So this is the earliest mention of a sermon, which is a teaching of the body of Christ on Christ. It requires three things. And I know this sounds almost obvious, but these three things are important. And teaching, as much as it is just one person speaking to a group of people, just like we're doing now, it requires both parties to be fulfilled. And so I'm going to explain the three components of a sermon, the three components of teaching. The first, it requires the general teaching of somebody to the congregation. Like May. Uh, yes, very self-explanatory. But the second thing is listening. It requires the active listening of the body of Christ. When there is no active listening, teaching is not being fulfilled. It sounds very obvious, but sometimes we might sit in our seats and doze off or not be, not be actively engaged and for me, that's fine. Not because I think it's fine for everybody to be distracted, but because I love you guys and I understand that life is hard and we have good days and we have bad days. But when there is no active listening, the teaching of, of the work of Christ in your life is not actually fulfilled. And the third thing, which is actually really overlooked in the practice of teaching is the practice of what they heard. In order for teaching, all right, this is this in itself could be a sermon, all right? In order for teaching to be fulfilled, it requires, number one, somebody teaching y'all, 
Number two, your active listening. And number three, your practical application and practice of what you heard. When there is no practice of what you heard, teaching of the work of Christ is not fulfilled, which means that if somebody can sit on their butts every day of their life and listen to a sermon and never carry it into their Monday, teaching is not fulfilled. Now, that's a lot. There is grace for us all, but this is what it means to be taught in the ministry and the love of Christ is that it requires teaching, it requires listening, and it requires a practicing of what you've, taught, you've been taught. If you feel like you're in a season right now where you are not able to practice what you are hearing, it's, it's worth having a conversation with me about, and most importantly, it's worth contending for your, for your life about. It's something to be nervous about, and it's worth getting up out of our comfort and getting out of our comfort zones to practice what we've been hearing, practice the love of God, maybe go outside and within practical boundaries, loving on people or, you know, going out of our comfort zones to having conversations with people who might not know Jesus, who might be distraught, um, getting vulnerable with our community like these. You need to be in a space where you are practicing what you are hearing in order to have teaching be fulfilled in your life so that you can abide in God's word and know Jesus better. So that's the first thing, teaching. The second thing is fellowship. Now, the word fellowship in Greek is koinonia or koinonia. Koinonia, koinonia, it's tomato, tomato. What it means more woodenly is being brought together. Being brought together. By definition, what it means is the personal coherence of the individual members of the congregation. Now, this is very important because it is the coherence of the individual members of the congregation. We might feel like we can't fellowship right now, but fellowship happens when people are brought together, when people are being brought together. Now, obviously it is best for fellowship to happen in person, but the key point of fellowship is not physical location. It's not being brought together physically, but it's hearts and minds and wills being brought together by the blood of Christ. Which means that if we are all sitting together and having fun, but we are not being brought together in the love of God, if people in our congregation are not being brought into the fold of family, if there are still people on the outskirts looking in and not able to fully participate in the fellowship of the believers, then we are not having fellowship and everything is for nothing. Um, in college, um, like just one example that I can think of off the top of my head, um, in college, every, every Saturday morning at 10 a.m., every single guy in our ministry that can play basketball headed over to the East Gym um, on Binghamton's campus and played ball. It was such a structured, consistent event that they actually even made t-shirts for like, um, tournaments. I mean, it was, it was, it, it looked really good. Like the t-shirts looked pretty bomb. Like they were pretty fire. I stole them all the time. I stole people's jerseys all the time to wear them during retreats and whatnot. Um, it was fire and they had a name for it and they called it bing ball. Okay. So every single person 
that you joined Bing Ball. Even if you couldn't play, you joined Bing Ball. You, you, you worked out together. If you didn't play ball, then you at least worked out together. I know some guys, they play tennis. Like some guys, they like was lifting and like spotting each other uh, if they didn't play ball. But at the very least, everybody was at the gym together and eating together afterwards. It was their main way of evangelism, you know, bringing in frat, like, cause like our, our bros were like good um, at, at ball. And so a lot of like other orgs join, would join them. Like the Lambdas would come play with them. I don't know what the Lambdas are. It's a Greek organization on campus. It's called a fraternity. Um, but like the Lambdas would join them sometimes, like people from the Korean or the Chinese student associations would join them. Like any, any person was free to join them and, and they played with them and got food with them afterwards. And it was like one of the main ways that they like networked with people in the community, got to know everybody. But one day, oh, and I got so much backlash for this. One day um, I was praying now at the time I was like dating somebody who was in the, in the ministry. Um, and I was praying because he had shared with me that he wanted to bring one of our like high school friends to church. And I was praying and I was really being convicted with the fact that the word fellowship was being loosely thrown around about Bing ball. Sure. People were being brought into the fold. Sure. You know, everybody was in unity, and yes, everybody was having fun and people were being cohesive and the body of Christ was being united. But if all you do is ball, spoiler alert, that's not fellowship. So, so I said it was, my, it was my turn to lead prayer for the ministry. I stood in front of like about 60, 70 people and I was like, hey, basketball is not fellowship. Basketball can be a part of fellowship, but basketball is not fellowship. Um, huge amounts of backlash for that. Um, but I did not go back on my word um, because fellowship happens when the believers are being brought together. Sometimes that means vulnerability. Sometimes that means honesty. Sometimes that means play. Your girl loves to play, right? But those things alone are not fellowship. So if we are a church that can only play together and have a hard time praying together, we need to be challenged to reconstruct our understanding of fellowship because playing together is not enough. Now that's the second component. The third component is the breaking of bread. Now, this is a very specific cultural understanding that is like, th th this language of the breaking of bread is, is something that is very specific to that time period. So even in the beginning of Acts, in Acts chapter one, we looked at it when Jesus was with the apostles, living with the apostles, it said when Jesus ate with them, instead of when Jesus lived with them, when Jesus was staying with them, when Jesus was talking to them, it said when Jesus ate with them. So this understanding of eating together is something that is very both communal and both very life-giving. It's very normal 
It's considered to be consistent. It's a staple of life. And so it is something like doing like in our day and age, it can be, it can be equated to like, yeah, just like living together, like going over each other's houses, making food, like hanging out, um, buying groceries together, stuff like that, like very practical elements of living together. Um, food is very spiritual. Why do I say that? C.S. Lewis says that human beings are like amphibians. We are like a frog. But you know how like a frog can be in both land and in sea? Our existence consists of two elements that belong to two different worlds, body and soul. Now, a lot of people in church teach this as though the body and the soul exist separately. The sins of the body, the sins of the spirit, the works, the gifts of the flesh, the gifts of the spirit, the spiritual world, the physical world, like it's very compartmentalized in our brains. But in actuality, the things of the body affect the things of the spirit and the things of the spirit affect the things of the body. Now, the main thing that affects the body is food because food brings energy. My stomach is rumbling right now. Food brings energy. I'm so hungry. Um, But food, because it is so essential for our body, it impacts our spirit. That's why some pastors, not not me, but some pastors, um, like quit things like alcohol. um, And that's why people try to quit things like smoking, even though it might be legal um, and it might be acceptable for you to do societally and it's normalized and it's not seen to be something that is like debauchery or, you know, um, sinful, like you're going to go to hell if you do it, you know? But um, a lot of people who don't engage in these things, it's because it's based in the belief, the very real belief, honestly, that whatever we consume, whatever goes into our body does affect our spirit, whether or not we realize. Um, so the breaking of bread is not just something that is normalized. It's not just something that is like doing life together, but it's life giving. And it's very important because life is exchanged in food. Jane though always, always, always prioritizes eating together over playing together. I don't know if you've noticed that about the way that I lead our our congregation, but it's my personal belief that when we eat together, we will grow closer because life is exchanged. I believe, and I mean, our pastoral staff, we talk about this all the time. We believe that even preaching, even a service, even joining together in the body of Christ is kind of like a meal where we are spiritually able to eat together. So eating is very important. But one final thing is that it's also a reference to the Last Supper the most monumental, immortalized moment of eating in scripture has to be when Jesus broke the bread and said, this is my body. Eat it, do it in remembrance of me. This is my blood. Drink this in remembrance of me. This is a very important act of remembering in a physical act of consumption, the very spiritual thing that was done on our behalf. 
And the thing about communion is that it brings into the flesh something that we cannot see or touch or feel. We cannot see or touch or feel Jesus. I mean, we might be able to feel Jesus in our hearts, but we cannot feel Jesus. A lot of us can't or may not have. Some people have. Some people have seen or touched or felt him. But I mean, yeah, seen or heard or felt him. But a lot of us, we have not been able to, like in our sensory, in our sensory understanding, engage with Christ. Communion is a sensory remembrance of a spiritual act. And, and that is all in food. Even Jesus prioritized food to be the main way that we can remember him in the flesh. So eating together is not just a physical, it's not just a like life-giving thing, but it's a very spiritual act, very important thing to do together. And the last thing, but definitely not the least thing, is prayers. I want to I want to emphasize something. I I love I love doing devotionals with God. QT and praying alone, having my own prayer call. My mom has a prayer room. She made our dining room her prayer room and also her exercise room, but it's her prayer room. It's like her room with like Bibles everywhere and gospel tracts everywhere and like two crosses and like a big plaque that says she finished all her evangelism training or whatever. Um, and she prays in there every day in a very loud way, very open way. And I personally am so blessed by her life. And I'm so blessed in my own prayer life with God in my own personal prayer life with God that I'm not standing here saying that individual prayer isn't important. But when it comes to the life of the believers, there is no distinction between personal and communal, communal prayer. A lot of you guys might feel like when you read God's word alone and when you pray alone, you know, it might be the holiest thing for you to do. But a lot of you guys might feel like it's really difficult. And so when you see people that have a personal prayer life, you're like, oh my God, that person is so holy. Now, while I do encourage you to continually seek and press and fight, fight to know God, fight past, not, not, not fight, you know, to be saved, but fight your flesh to know God. Like while I encourage that, I will say that you not being able to pray on your own is not an indicative factor in your spiritual life, in your spiritual well-being. This prayer is actually communal. You have to understand, this is a very real, this is a very real understanding of what unbelievers do when they get saved. This is not like a, oh, it's all about the body and it's only about the body. First of all, it was 3,000 3, souls that were just saved. It's, it wasn't supposed to be about the body of Christ. But what it ended up being was about the body of Christ. And the main way that these non-believers who are now baptized and entered into the kingdom of God, the main way that they grew spiritually were all in the church. So I want to establish that for us, that communal prayer, you know, when one person is praying and everybody's listening to that prayer and making it their own prayer, or when there is prayer being done on behalf of Korea, or when there is prayer being done on behalf of America, prayer being done on behalf of a body of believers, um, people going around praying together in the same prayer. These kinds of communal prayers are really more biblical than an individual one, or maybe just as biblical. And the important thing to note is that it was uncomfortable 
it was uncomfortable for the body of Christ to do this because in Jewish culture, there is no established culture of prayer. There's an hour of prayer. They call temples houses of prayer, but there were no actual ways to pray. And a lot of the times, the people who engaged in daily prayer were the teachers of the law, people like me. So everyday people didn't really pray. So for these believers to come together and pray, not just pray on their own to God, but come together and pray is very countercultural. But it is really, really important. And these four elements of the church what was, was what led unbelievers to be in wonder of the signs and miracles of Christ. The church, the church was able to engage with God and engage with their world by being able to do these four things. And it says here, like, how, do, how were they able to continue to thrive by doing these, three th- these four things? In verse 43, it says, All came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. Now, this word awe, what does it mean to be in awe of God? What does it mean to be in awe of the acts of the Spirit? This word awe actually can, is a double-jointed word. It can mean both terror and reverence. <laughs> and I've explained this before. But if I'm playing basketball, like say for whatever reason, I have, I have to play one NBA game. And... LeBron is on that court. The difference between whether or not I'm in panic or whether or not I'm in respect is whether or not he's on my team. I will say that one more time. The difference between whether or not I'm in panic or respect is whether or not LeBron is in my family. In this understanding of awe and fear of God, It is a simple acknowledgement of the great power and skill and authority that God possesses. But a matter of when when it becomes fear and when it becomes respect is whether or not you believe that God is with you. So if you believe that God is not with you, you might be angry, you might be terrified, you might be anxious. But if you believe that God is with you, then you are filled with respect, you are filled with awe, And most importantly, you are filled with wonder. Wonder. The way that the church, and nobody makes this, nobody makes this like connection, okay? The way that the church never lost their wonder were these four things. The way that the church never got jaded about the acts of the spirit were these four things. Teaching fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. These four spiritual communal practices were the very, the very legs that held up the body of Christ to never become disillusioned or never have the wonder of the Spirit of God and the power of God fade. You know how we, our honeymoon phases fade with God? And when we're not at a rise, it fades Part of that is because when we're at a retreat, we are practicing these spiritual disciplines more than any other place that we're at. 
because we are so united with the body of Christ, because we're not just playing games. We're forced to pray together. We're forced to worship together for extended amounts of time because we are consistently being taught the word of God and practicing it in our small groups, because we are also eating three meals a day together and sleeping together. That's why retreats feel like a spiritual high and helps you to not lose your wonder because that is the time when you are practicing church the most without any distraction or any competing idol. And you're able to focus in on your relationship with God. It's not a spiritual roller coaster, high or low thing. What you're experiencing is very natural and very normal because your spirit was built to be trained in that context. Now, Jane, though, I mean, we can idealize, but how does, does the church really do this? I mean, isn't there a reason why we go to retreats because the church doesn't do this? So like, I mean, we can idealize it, Jane, though, but like, this isn't actually what's happening today. Now, in order to know whether or not the church actually does this, we have to know what the church does back then. And I will acknowledge the fact that these four elements are very, very, some of these things are very practical, but some of these things are very vague. What is the line between play and pray in fellowship? What is the line between eating together and breaking bread? What is the line of all of these things? Prayer and teaching might be clear because there's only one set action that you can really do, but what is fellowship and what is prayer? Like what is sharing? When, when does sharing enter and when is it play? Like why is it all fellowship? Um, and thankfully Luke uses the rest of this passage to elaborate on what it means for fellowship to occur. What does it mean for fellowship to occur? It says here, all, all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So we believe that fellowship is play. <laughs> but the body of believers, fellowship is sharing. You can be sharing a joke, but so long as you are willing to share your life, as much as you are willing to tell that joke to that person, then you are engaging in fellowship. A lot of the times in our church today, we can exchange jokes, but not feelings. We can exchange bubble tea, but we won't exchange our testimonies. We can exchange a good laugh, but we won't exchange what we own. And if that is you, then be convicted and be challenged. I'm not condemning you. By no means am I condemning you, for I, I wrestle with this as well. So I'm not condemning you. Don't, also, don't take it offensively or personally, because let's be real here. I didn't write scripture. This is what scripture says. So. Don't take it personally. Jane Doe is not coming for anybody's life, but it is a very grievous understanding that we must come to terms with. If that we are, we're never willing to do these things that we might not have been fellowshipping at all. But that fellowship is not just important for the person that, is, that we are sharing with, but it is needed as practical application of teaching for ourselves. We need to be engaging in fellowship. We need to be sharing our possessions. We need to be sharing our lives in order for us to be spiritually healthy. But if you're not doing that, then you might be at a place where the water, in your, it's, like a, it's like a pond that isn't able to like 
like when, you know, when water gets still water, like a pond versus a river, when water gets like still, it gets moldy and it starts rotting. It's like that with us. If we're not practicing the spirit, the conviction that is being put into our hearts, then a lot of the times we will rot. The unity of the believers was that they shared their possessions. Now, I get this a lot. I want to, this is not communism. (laughs) It's not socialism in scripture, all right, y'all? This is not, we're not talking some North Korea stuff, all right? This is not what that is, okay? The unity of believers sharing their possessions, what this likely meant is that they owned their own stuff, all right? It's not that you never, you're like, "If if I own my own thing, like, I'm a sinner. No, 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 no. You can own your own things. Okay, but it's this understanding that they were so open-handed about what they owned that they were genuinely willing to use their possessions for the common good. They were genuinely willing to share the extent of what they had for the sake of those who had little. Now, this is not something that is so uncommon or something that is so countercultural to the Jews, actually. Even the Qumran actually said that any individual's property needed to be understood as both for the individual and for the group. So even non-believers, even non-believers can share their possessions. It is not something that was seen to be so unheard of, so countercultural, so self-sacrificing that only Christians can do it. Actually, this is the element really that anybody can do. Now, one thing that's very important about sharing your possessions is that it was willing. It was voluntary. You were never being forced to share. Why? How can an entire church be willing to share in what they had so that everybody is doing well. How? The answer is friendship. Friendship that is given to us through the transforming power of the Spirit, changing our hearts. As the Holy Spirit transforms our hearts, the first thing, the first thing that comes out of members of the body of Christ is friendship. Spiritual friendship is the first application of the spirit-led transformation in our hearts. It is actually not not just a biblical thing that friends hold all things in common. It was a Greek proverb. So this was the element that even the world was partaking in. And the body of Christ was doing on a greater level because the Holy Spirit was transforming our hearts to be friends, to love one another. They were not sharing goods. They were selling them to support the needy. Like I said, it wasn't communism. It was friendship. Organic friendship. That wasn't all, though. That wasn't all that was breaking bread and fellowship. Verse 45 Oh no, verse 46, it says, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. 
And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. There are two settings that are brought up in the body of Christ. It's meeting in the temple and meeting at home. Meeting at the temple, meeting at home. Meeting at home, they were probably engaging in primarily koinonia and eating together. And meeting in the temple, they were probably more, actually, they were probably also praying here. But meeting at the temple, it was a mixture of also fellowship and teaching. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, joyful and willing to share. But the key word in this passage is actually unanimous. I think it says the word unanimous. Um, all who were believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing proceeds to all as any had need. They unanimously received their food with glad and generous hearts. I think that is actually the NIV translation. So for those of you guys who might have the NIV in front of you, you might be able to say the word unanimously. And it actually uses the word unanimously instead of all. Why unanimously? This word in the original language means together. Not physically. Not physically together. But in one mind. Everybody was on the same page about love, about generosity, about forgiveness, about koinonia, about scripture, about where they stood with God, about the confusion of life. You have to understand, this church was going through even harsher circumstances than what we are going through today. There is a natural health crisis that is unifying the whole world in a united sense of suffering. At this time, they were being persecuted. They're going through something that is far more difficult for Christians to go through than us. But they were in so much joy. Why? Because they were not just together physically, but they were of one mind. While at the temple, while fellowshipping at home, eating together with glad and generous hearts, remembering Christ. And this kind of level of eating together and sharing and being at the temple and being together and doing all these things together, that is the intimacy that allowed the new ones to know the older believers and be, believe, be in unity. For example, um, a lot of you guys are going off to college or a lot of you guys are in college right now. Um, when I was in college, one of the main things that my college ministry had a really tough time was, was unity. We did, oh my gosh, my upperclassmen, like they were really like racking their brain. Like, why isn't our church unified? And like we did retreat upon a retreat upon retreat upon retreat with the theme unity. I saw the theme unity on a damn t-shirt four times in two years. All right. Four times in two years, no, like different passages all throughout the New Testament about unity, all right? And it was very confusing because we kept pressing in, we kept praying, we kept working at it, but nothing was changing. In the summer before my junior year, I thought, and I thought, and I thought, and I thought. I just thought and thought and thought because 
at the time when, when my upperclassmen, the main people that were taking care of us graduated, I was 19. I was the, it was the end of my sophomore year. I was going into junior year and I was going to, I was about to be the VP. So I was like, and I was going to have to leave the system. I was like, what the heck is going on right now? Our ministry at that point had dwindled from 60 to about 30. And I was like, I, 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 I don't know what to do. <laughs> don't, don't know what to do. A couple of sisters had joined a sorority just to spite the ministry. It was just bad. So I was like, okay, so how do I bring about unity? And I remembered praise team. Why do I say praise team? Praise team was really tight in my ministry. They, it had people from all over, like, like Korean internationals, like 1.5s, people that came back from Kunde, me, you know, like our praise team leader couldn't speak a lick of Korean. I mean, he was Korean, but he just couldn't speak a lick of Korean. Yeah. And it was just like, like that, you know, um, just people from all over, like California, Korea, New York, New Jersey, everywhere. And, um, but we were so, t we were so tight. And I was like, is it like this united sense of like suffering? Is it cause like we keep like doing music together? I realized it was because we always prayed together, like in the same room for 15 minutes individually. And then afterwards we always went to eat. We never missed eating together. Even when everybody had finals, we never missed eating together. Ever missed eating together. I have no idea why eating with strangers makes your heart closer to them. I can't tell you. The only thing that I can say is that it's probably really spiritual. But eating together really melded us together. And so, like, I remember, because I, when I started praise team, y'all, I was ratchet, okay? I was not the type of girl that gets along with people at church. <laughs> so, but I, but I got plugged in, like, really fast and really well. And so, I, I thought about it. I was like, okay food. My junior year, I cooked three meals a day for multiple people. Like every meal I was cooking for four people a day. Um, and I, I was, I was a very imperfect leader. I was very broken. Didn't know what was coming out of my mouth half the time. Said basketball is, <laughs> said basketball ain't fellowship. Like did my own thing, you know? Um, but when I left this ministry two years later, it had tripled to 90. Scripture says that when you partake in these four minute, when, when you partake in these four fellowships, breaking of bread, being generous with what you own, um, you know, just praying together um, at communally, not just like praying individual prayers in the same room, but praying the same prayer together and not just listening to the sermon, but practicing what you're preaching with one another and sharing life. These things are so attractive to unbelievers. That scripture says it, they were at, being added day by day, people were being saved. The, the verb is passive, showing that it is God who's doing the saving. But when the body of Christ is doing its function and practicing, practicing these four elements well, it is so attractive. The love that is exchanged, the life that is exchanged is so countercultural that it cannot help but attract the body, can, cannot help but attract people. And I remember when I graduated, when I graduated, I cried a lot when I graduated. Um, like my whole ministry decided to join our graduation. So there were like 60 people 
Um, it was very overwhelming. Um, but as I was looking around, I remember thinking to myself like, God, I want to feel proud of myself, but I, I didn't do anything. I just kept giving people food. Like, I don't really, I don't really know what happened. <laughs> I was kind of like, like, I, I'll never forget. Our senior banquet was like 108 people in one room. And we were like, not able to like, we were all, we were almost not able to like, even be in the same space that we've been having. And I was like, what is going on? Like, why is our church using the overflow room? Like for the first time in forever, like what is going on right now? And God was really convicting me with the fact that it is when the church is joined together and living out life the way God had intended it, that's all we need to do to witness to the world. Yeah, we can share testimonies and yes, we should bring others into the fold. But you have to understand at this time, people didn't practice, like Peter and John, the apostles went on doing signs and miracles and performing and evangelizing that way. But in the very early church, in the first 400 years of the church, of the life of the church, they barely did evangelism. Actually, people who were not sure about their salvation was not able to enter into Sunday service. You had to be baptized to join service. And yet, Christianity went from the number one persecuted religion in that region to being the main religion in the area. During the time of the Middle East, around 400 AD, 60% of everybody who lived there were Christian. So much so that Constantinople actually made it and then Christendom began. So you have to understand, was it something special that they did? No. Now, should we focus in on numbers even? No. But growth is very important. The church is, as an authentic body, should be growing. So then what is going on? This. This is all they needed to do. I say all, but it's really difficult to look past your own needs and your own wants and your own desires to be able to partake in this. So what does this mean for our lives? What does it mean for us to be an application? What does it mean for the body of Christ to be an authentic body? The first thing is God's presence. God is present in a real church. It's not a religious organization. It's not an institution. It's not a business. God is present in a real church. The second thing is proper priorities. A church's priorities are set by the gospel and not the world. We are all members of the body of Christ, which means that our priorities are set by the gospel and not the world. Our priority is not to have the best events. Our priority is not to be the flashiest ministry. Our priority is not even just our own needs and our own successes. Our priority is teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, and prayer. Our vocation takes a backseat. You guys have to understand this. I'm not saying, Jane Doe's not saying, don't be diligent about your jobs. Don't be diligent about your schoolwork. That's not what Jane Doe is saying. But your number one priority 
as a believer, our number one priority is to be together. It's to go together. It's to walk together. To break bread together. To share life together. To practice what we've heard together. Prayer together, not just alone. If you know how to pray alone, but not together, I want to challenge you to pray with other people this week. Personal transformation is only possible in prayer. You have to understand, everybody was voluntarily giving away what they own. It wasn't because they were holier people than us. It's not because they were nicer people than us. It's because Christ was transforming their hearts to do that, to be in friendship. But that's only possible in prayer. And that's what brings growth. North Boston, our church, we might not be growing right now. In this time of COVID, we might not be growing. But we cannot let something as simple as a stay-at-home order to keep us from being the body of Christ. I've been very angry this week about the fact that America has been this terrible and the fact that New York is just going crazy um, with people passing away every day. And I was asking God, like, what can I do for the people I love? I'm all the way in Massachusetts, God. What can I do for my family? What can I do for my friends that are grieving? What can I do um, for the families of those who have lost lives um, as a result of this crisis and God was really transforming my heart to be able to say they don't need a vaccine they don't need my money I mean I will give and I have been but it's not that they need my money it's not that they need my presence it's not that they need my physical support what they need is the presence of God what they need is the body of Christ what they need is gospel driven transformation what they need is salvation Think about it. If we're on the verge of dying, what do we need? Money or Jesus? And you don't need to just do that by going on the streets and standing on top of a rock and being like, everybody, believe in Jesus. That's not, that's not what God is asking for you to do. That's not what God is challenging us with. He's challenging us with practicing the encounter that he's given us. Would you pray with me? Can we take some time to pray together? From wherever you are listening, we hope you were blessed by this week's message. For more information, check out our website at mbkumc.com.